My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Ralph Jean-Paul and Travis Ross. Since way back in 1791, From the very beginning of the revolution through which the enslaved people of the French colony of Saint-Domingue freed themselves and founded the Republic of Haiti, powerful nations in Europe and later North America have interfered in the island nation and worked to keep it unjust, unfree, and subordinate. From France extorting huge sums of money at Cannon Point a few decades after the revolution as payment for the loss of slaves and of the colony, to a 20-year occupation of the country by the United States in the early 20th century, to the collusion between Haitian elites and the Western powers in support of the Duvalier dictatorship between the 1950s and the 1980s, imperial meddling in Haiti has been constant. In the face of all of that, however, the spirit of popular rebellion among the Haitian people has constantly re-emerged. It was mass uprisings that brought an end to the Duvalier dictatorship in 1986, for instance. And popular movements have worked hard to seize whatever opportunities they could since then to build a more just society, by, for instance, electing reformer Jean-Bertrand Aristide as president in the country's first post-dictatorship democratic election in 1991. Haiti remains very poor and highly unequal, however, with its economy dominated by a tiny local elite and international capital. Very lax labor laws and the lowest minimum wage in the Americas have contributed to a very high level of exploitation for Haitian workers and profit for powerful corporations. Despite nominal democracy, local elites and their international allies have done everything they can to subvert any progress that would benefit the majority. Aristide was deposed by military coup shortly after his election in 1991. After various shenanigans in the interim, he again won an election in 2001. Again, he pushed for reforms, quite moderate reforms for the most part, but ones that might have made life a bit more livable for ordinary Haitians and cut somewhat into the profits of Haitian elites and their international allies. And again, he faced a coup d'etat in 2004, with the active collusion of the United States, of France, and, most relevant to this show, of Canada. Since then, Aristide's party, called Lavalas, has been prevented in various ways from participating in elections, and elites have remained firmly in control. In the wake of the 2004 coup, groups acting in solidarity with popular movements in Haiti sprang up in cities across Canada. These groups soon came together to form a Canada-wide network called the Canada-Haiti Action Network. The initial goals of the solidarity organizing were to draw attention to events in Haiti and Canada's role in them, and to try to hold the Canadian government accountable. It was the Liberal government of Paul Martin that supported the coup, but Canadian federal governments to this day have remained complicit in the international community's ongoing support for Haitian elites against Haitian democracy and Haitian popular movements. 
Solidarity work in Canada has faded considerably since the early years after the coup, but it has not disappeared. Most of the solidarity committees in individual cities are no longer active, and along the way the Canada-Haiti Action Network renamed itself the Canada-Haiti Information Project. Its focus now is maintaining a website. They collect and publish articles from grassroots and international media sources in both French and English for a Canadian audience. At the very least, this work allows Canadians who are interested to more easily educate themselves about Haiti and about Canada's complicity in the injustices faced by the Haitian people. And it provides a tool to put pressure on mainstream journalists who are covering Haiti for Canadian publications to include the kinds of context and background about Haiti and about Canada's role that are usually erased. Ralph Jean-Paul is a Haitian-Canadian who lives in Winnipeg, and Travis Ross is a lifelong Montrealer. I speak with them about events in Haiti, about Canada's complicity, about the Canada-Haiti Information Project, and about what else Canadians could be doing to act in solidarity with popular movements in Haiti. My name is Ralph Jean-Paul from Haiti. I've been in Canada, specifically in Winnipeg, for the last 25 years or so. Canada has welcomed me as an immigrant, and I appreciate that. I become involved in this group that is the Canada-Haiti Information Project group, formerly Canada-Haiti Action Network, about 14 years ago. Hey, my name is Travis Ross. I'm based in Montreal. I was born and grew up here. I initially became involved in Haiti Action Montreal, so a local committee based here, in 2008-2009. Through there, I got in contact with Roger Annis, who was one of the founders of the Canada Haiti Action Network, the original name for the website that he founded with Jean Fainville. And over time, ended up taking over a lot of the duties for the website. We still work with Roger, still in regular contact, but I edit the majority of the English content and Ralph, the majority of the French content the website. The name was changed from the Canada Haiti Action Network to the Canada Haiti Information Project to reflect the main focus of the website, which is news gathering. The network itself, the Canada Action Network, which was the original name for the website, came out of various activists and committees across Canada getting together in response to Canada's involvement in the coup that removed Jean-Bertrand Aristide from power in 2004. This is a movement that started in 2004, just after, you know, some people call it a coup d'etat, but I like to call it a kidnapping of an elected government and president, where citizens of Canada feel like it was not just for that to happen, and also for the part that the Canadian government played in the removal of that government at that time. So they felt that they had to not only support the Haitian people that were suffering at the time, but also to inform the Canadian public on the role the Prime Minister then, which was Martin, took place in the removal of the government there in Haiti in 2004. We had a group in Ottawa, in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Halifax, I believe. So it was really broad. But over time, people had other engagement, and I understand that. So they move on to do other things. And then a few of us women with the movement to keep the public in general to be informed. So maybe a useful piece of context for listeners would be to talk more about those circumstances in Haiti that prompted the original creation of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. Haiti is one of the countries in the Caribbean, or in the world for that matter, that is really a result or a prototype of the failed capitalist system. 
By that, I mean it's a system where you find a very small minority of people that control a vast majority of the wealth of the country. And they decide who become president. They decide when the president must be removed. Everything in the country. And there was a movement since the removal of Jean-Claude Duvalier in 1986. They started to organize themselves, wanted to change things in Haiti. And that's when, besides Aristide, there was a lot of actors that take it upon themselves there to organize the communities and to bring about that change. Obviously, the change was not good for everyone because you had that elite there that controlled everything in the country. They wanted to maintain things as they were. And so Aristide became president in 1991 after he won the election. Uh, he was overthrown by the military then that was financed by the elite and the international community seven months into office. And he was removed from power and sent to exile. And with the pressure of the Haitian people and with some international friends as well, he was forced back in Haiti in 1993, but with a lot of condition imposed on him. So he was not free to do certain things. So his power was really limited. Because of the Haitian constitution, he could not seek a second term back to back. So there was an election there which the Haitian people vote for Aristide's right-hand man, which René Préval. So he served his term, and then Aristide was able to run again for presidency in 2001. So then again, he became president of Haiti by a vast majority of the people that they voted for. And obviously, it was never in the intention of the elite and the international community to have Aristide as president because it was not very easy to be manipulated. So they tried to assassinate him. They tried to bribe him. But he had none of that. He wanted to serve his people. So when he became president again in 2001, the elite and obviously the international community, they fomented, they invented scenarios where they put labels on Aristide and his party, the Lavalas party, the most popular party in Haiti. To this day, after all those persecutions that they suffer. Yes. Around 2003, mm -hmm. where Canada and the Canadian government become particularly relevant to the whole story, the Paul Martin, the liberals are in power at the time. And the way it was framed was because of Jean Chrétien's refusal to get involved in the war in Iraq, Paul Martin and his caucus felt it was necessary to help out the United States and other imperial ventures. So they became much more intimately involved in removing Aristide from power in Haiti. In the election that led to Aristide's second mandate to office, there was, I think it was a senatorial election where his party candidate, the Lavalas party candidate, did not win on the first ballot in that election. So there was supposed to be a runoff election to decide which one of the two top candidates that will win the seat. But the election was overwhelming in favor of the Lavalas party. And even with the runoff, the Lavalas party was almost guaranteed to win it because they were so popular. So Preval government, for whatever reason, did not feel like it was necessary to do a runoff election, which was a bad decision. So the opposition that was really fueled by the international community, they used that excuse 
to say that the election was strained and fought and whatsoever because they could not win. And to this day, they cannot win the election. That's why to this day, they have to trick the elections to be able to put their people in there. So they use that as an excuse because there was no second runoff. So that was pretty much fuel the removal of Aristide in power in 2004. One of Aristide's main policies was to raise the minimum wage. That's what made him a risk, I think, to the we're saying the Chaps community, we're talking mostly about the government of the United States and in Canada and France, who see the Haitian population as basically an assembly hub, a place to get very cheap labor where there's really no labor laws or rights, and the average wage is the lowest in the entire hemisphere. So as far mm-hmm. as these imperialists, these business owners and so on are concerned, that's what Haiti is. It's a assembly line center for cheap electronics, for textiles, t-shirts and so on. And there's also a lot of mining resources there for mining companies who are looking to exploit it and not give anything back to the population. So there's a direct interest there wanting to make sure that the minimum wage doesn't go up and that the government doesn't reflect the needs of the people. Give listeners a sense of the kinds of solidarity activities that have happened in Canada since the 2004 coup. And maybe start by talking about what happened earlier on when it was under the banner of the Action Network. I guess I can speak to a few activities. I mean, as far as I know, there are no functioning committees dedicated to Haiti solidarity at the moment in Canada. So there's very little activity at the moment. But in the past, there was a lot of work being done. The initial push in Montreal, as far as the Haiti Action Committee, which was part of the network, was to get together and start exposing Canada's crimes in Haiti and supporting the coup that resulted in thousands of activists being killed and uh, dictatorship and so on, was to get the foreign affairs minister at the time, Pettigrew, to lose the election. He was up for re-election in one part of Montreal, and they worked hard to make sure that the residents of Calcier, his neighborhood, were well aware of his promotion of the coup, and they succeeded, and he wasn't re-elected. When I got involved in 2008-2009, we focused our time into bringing speakers from Haiti into Canada to speak in Montreal and Ottawa. So we coordinated with the Action Committee in Ottawa at the time and were able to bring Mario Joseph, who's a renowned human rights lawyer based in Haiti, and Rhea Dahl, who runs a community center slash school called Sapudep, and brought them on a speaking tour through Montreal and Ottawa. They spoke to journalists, they spoke to academics and to the general public. It was very successful. The last event that I'm aware of on my side of the country here in Montreal was to bring Mario Joseph up a second time when Denis Coderre was the mayor of Montreal. Denis Coderre was previously part of the Federal Liberal Party, and when he was a member of the federal government, he was the minister of the Francophonie. One of his main roles connected to the coup in 2004 was to spread propaganda and misinformation about Aristide. Mago Joseph, when he came up, one of the things he focused on was demanding that Denis Coderre apologize for his role in undermining Haitian democracy. The activists here in Montreal who brought him up were successful in that they were able to get the press, mainly the French press in Quebec, to pay attention and come and hear him speak and to quote him on that and have him repeat it. And Denis Coderre was faced with having to respond to that, which he, of course, refused to acknowledge that he had any role in the coup. Since 2008-2009, I'm not aware of any committee specifically getting together on issues related specifically to Haiti solidarity, but there was a recent action last summer around Haitian refugees coming into Montreal. There's been a, a large move to support them. Haiti solidarity activists were part of that. And what about since you changed the name to Canada-Haiti Information Project? That work is mainly to maintain a news gathering hub. For anyone who does want to learn about Haiti and then potentially about Canada's relationship with Haiti, which is why I maintain a foreign policy section as well, because 
one of the reasons I dedicated my time to the website is, generally speaking, the mainstream news media is information poor when it comes to Haiti. And what I mean by that is when articles are written, they lack any context for Canada's relationship with Haiti over the past 20, 30 years. And consequently, often end up portraying Haiti as just an economic basket case. The population can't get back together no matter how much money Canada hands over. They can't form a functioning democracy. And the basic framework is not just misinformed, ends up being profoundly racist as well. So although the website is a small project, it makes sure that there is a news gathering hub where there's articles from all over where someone wants to learn about the relationship between Canada and Haiti and get news about Haiti in general. It is available there and it's maintained and kept up to date. One example I can give is a specific journalist who was working for the Gazette. I believe he still writes them now. His name is Rene Brumer. When he first started writing on Haiti, he was a prototypical example of what I'm talking about. He relied strictly on mainstream news resources to construct his idea of what Haiti was and what Canada's relationship was to it, and his article suffered as a result. The moment I read his first article, I wrote him an email, a critical email of his work. I wasn't the only Haiti activist who did so, but he actually responded. Although he wasn't necessarily pleased with all the criticism, he was open to listening to some of it. And over time, his writing on Haiti did improve, that more context. But like so many people who are writing on foreign policy in Canada and the West, he was quickly moved on to another subject, and now he's writing about local news in Montreal. One of the main issues I think that affects foreign policy reporting in Canada is that reporters aren't really given any time to learn about the region that they're writing about. So when your average person goes to read an article, the articles lack any context. There's no context in regards to Canada's role in the 2004 coup, what the reasons were behind doing it, that Canada has continued to meddle in Haitian politics since then. Under Harper, we meddled in their elections, along with the U.S. State Department under Hillary Clinton, to ensure that their chosen successor, Michel Martelly, would get in power, although on the first round of votes, I think he earned something around 10%, even less, of the popular votes, and that Lavalas, the most popular party, was excluded, so the elections themselves were rigged. And that was repeated again the following election. Our new president of Haiti, Chauvinet Moïse, doesn't have the support of the population. He's been accused of fraud. He's trying to reconstitute an army. The people he's put in charge of the army are the same people who were behind the coup and the repression after the 2004 coup. And none of these details are ever included or part of the framework in any of the reporting. So it's understandable to a degree why your average Canadian hearing stories about it through the mainstream media would have a complete distorted view of Haiti and Canada's relationship to it. So that's one of the main reasons why I think the site has value. Very briefly, where are things at today in terms of popular struggles in Haiti? We are seeing, as demonstrated uh, the demonstration in July 6, 7, and 8, a government in Haiti that is really not representative of the country or the people. The government made a decision to increase the fuel charges by 48 to 50 percent, and the people took the street because of that. Well, that's the way a lot of people like to see it. But I would say that it is a series of events and situations there that really compelled the people to take the street. And that goes since 2004, where you had then a government that wanted to better the situation of Haitian people. But since there is removal there, you have a series of governments that really been put in office to do just one thing, and that is to protect the elite. And with that, you find a series of unpopular and I would say irresponsible decisions by successive government after that. 
Okay, so just a few of them is the fact that you have the minimum wage in Haiti that is not respected. It is very low to begin with, 70 cents an hour. But there are some companies that doesn't even honor that minimum wage and nothing is being done against it. You have the elections. Well, I don't really call them elections, really. Those are selections, whether it's the deputies or the senators or the president for the past few elections there, they've been nominated because the, the elections have been tricked. So people, the people are frustrated by not being able to elect their own into office. And you have also the increase of the fuel price by 48 to 50 percent, which the government had to backtrack. They had to remove it from the table. Increase of the fuel will have an impact on everything across the board because fuel moves everything. So any two pennies you put on the fuel there, it will impact everything else. And the inflation is already high in Haiti, and you have the minimum wage that is the lowest in the Americas, and you raise fuel by 48% at once. That is criminal, in my opinion. On top of that, you have the money from the earthquake that was wasted by the Clinton and his Jewish supporters in Haiti. So there's a series of events that resulted in demonstration and the burning of the tires on the street and a few businesses and so forth that took place on July 6, 7, 8. Unfortunately, it has to get to a point where the people say, okay, enough of enough, and they take matters into their own hands and remove the people there because the system reached its limit. There's nothing good that you can do with the system. There has to be a new system. Yes, they removed the prime minister from office just a few days ago. He resigned. And then now they are in consultation with some people to see who will replace them. But whoever you put there won't bring any result because it's the system that is no good. What would you like to see people in Canada doing today to act in solidarity with the people of Haiti? I think the average Canadian still has this framework of looking at Canada in terms of foreign policy as us being peacekeepers. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, examples, whether it's supporting you know, the right-wing party in the Ukraine to selling arms to Saudi Arabia to supporting the dictatorship in Honduras and so on. There's just one case after another where whether it's Harper a few years ago or Trudeau now, our behavior on the global front with other countries in terms of foreign policy, particularly when the other countries are less developed, it's not the case that we're peacekeepers. In fact, it's often the opposite and we're supporting dictatorships or autocracies. It's difficult for your average Canadian to really take this on because they're constantly told by the mainstream media, we're peacekeepers, we're going around the world, we're, we're helping others. And Justin Trudeau has been very good at selling this image to Canadians. He's much better at it than Harper is, in my opinion. So it's a struggle for your average activist or committee to take these issues, have Canadians pay attention to it, because it's really easy to move on to the next topic, the next subject, and just really ignore what people are saying. It is very, very important that the people of Haiti knows that they have support overseas. They have people that can extend hands to them to write their MPs because after all, yes, it's good to, you know, send money to support uh, the grassroots movement there. It is good to go and visit them over there. Those are very good for the morale and everything. But the most important thing that we can do here is to make sure that we let the MPs know that we are watching their action and how they conduct business with regard to Haiti. And that would be a very big support, in my opinion, there. Whether we do it individually or we form a committee, 
or something. We organize from time to time. We get people to send letters to MPs or whatever things that we can do to shed light on the role of the Kenyan government in support to the injustice that is taking place in Haiti. And that's something that we have to encourage every time that we get a chance to. I briefly add two things. One is to follow the work of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, which is run by Brian Concanon. He helped found the BI with Mario Joseph, who's based in Haiti and Miami. So they're kind of sister organizations that work together. They've worked on various cases and had a lot of success. The main case that the IJDH is working on right now is to get justice for the people who were infected with cholera that was brought in by the UN through the Minister Occupying Force in 2004. So that is that the soldiers themselves that came in, some of them who were Nepalese in heritage, came in, were actually carrying the cholera virus with them, released their waste into the main waterways in Haiti, and since then thousands upon thousands of people have been infected and many have died. The IGADH is leading the fight against the UN to get compensation and accountability from the UN, who up until now, other than a church level apology, have refused to give any like, concrete form of compensation to Haitians. Uh, cholera hadn't been on the island for over a century, and now it's still rampant. There's still people getting sick from it. The other main way I would connect all we've been talking about, whether that's Haiti, solidarity activists in Canada, and Haitians generally is that many people know that the first kind of wave of people, refugees who came in from the United States, escaping Donald Trump's threat to deport any quote-unquote illegals or refugees, the majority were Haitian. The numbers have shifted now and the majority are Nigerian. But at the time, they were Haitian. And the majority of these refugees are being deported back to Haiti. This is one area where people, particularly in Montreal and Ottawa, but elsewhere, can also jump in and really help. And that is in defending these patients and trying to find any way to help them stay. It's particularly important because these refugees themselves have been outside of Haiti for years. The bulk of them left Haiti after the earthquake. That can be framed as sort of escaping a natural disaster. And to a degree, it's true, but it's also just as true that the infrastructure in Haiti was so fragile at the time of the earthquake that it made the consequences much more severe. And the reason why the infrastructure was in such shambles was because of democracy being undermined in the 2004 coup d'etat that Canada supported. So these economic refugees, or just refugees from Haiti, are very much escaping a situation that we as Canadians share some responsibility for. And although there's a big delay because they actually, the majority of the refugees went to Brazil first to find work, and then when the economy tanked there, slowly worked their way north and eventually reached Canada, that I would argue that we have a moral obligation, a duty to support these refugees, help them find work, help them stay in Canada. And through that, there'll be opportunities will grow for more solidarity with people inside Haiti and ideally to help develop the consciousness of Canadians to understand exactly what the relationship is between the two countries so that we can not just help Haiti progress, but stop interfering with what was already happening, which was democracy and progress and so on, because the Canadian government and, you know, we're democracy, whether or not you vote for Paul Martin or not, or Harper or not, we bear some of the responsibility. We're responsible to a degree for the state Haiti's in right now. You have been listening to my interview with Ralph Jean-Paul and Travis Ross about the Canada-Haiti Information Project. To learn more about their work, and to learn about both popular struggles in Haiti and Canada's complicity and injustice there, go to canada-haiti.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.